Hey there folks, it's me, Michael Bach, your Diversity Dude, and this is Talking to Canadians. When I was in seventh grade, there was a federal election. In social studies, my teacher made us memorize all of the cabinet ministers and their positions. Of course, we all know that Brian Mulroney became the prime minister, and that tells you what year I was in seventh grade. But to this day, I still remember that Flora MacDonald was appointed the Minister of Employment and Immigration, Manik Vizina became the minister responsible for La Francophonie, and Otto Jelinek became the Minister of Fitness and Amateur Sport. Mainly because I just like saying their names. I think my mental real estate was taken up by all that information because I cannot recall any of Mulroney's Senate appointments, nor what a senator's function was or really is. In fact, when I did think of senators, I always imagined stodgy old white men doing something stodgy. Luckily, my guest on this episode is here to clear things up. A recently appointed senator, Paula Simons, is an Albertan with a master's degree in journalism, and she is anything but stodgy. My preconceived notions of the Senate were definitely challenged in this chat, and I'm all the better for it. Here's my conversation with Paula Simons. Senator Paula Simons, welcome to Talking to Canadians. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Michael. We're so happy to have you. So you were a political columnist and investigative journalist with the Edmonton Journal, and now you're an independent senator representing Alberta. You have a history as an outspoken advocate for LGBTQ2 plus rights, mental health, and you're passionate about multiple causes. Let's talk about all that. Please, let's. So let's start of a little a little walk through the life of little Paula. Um, tell us oh. tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to journalist at the Edmonton Journal? All right. Well, I'm a born and raised Edmontonian. I came from a family of people who argued about politics all the time. So I came by that quite honestly. Uh, but the family's vision for me and my vision for myself was always that I would be a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. My dad's twin brother was a lawyer. Uh, and so if you had a bright argumentative daughter, that seemed like a logical career path for her. And when I got to the University of Alberta, uh, I, I blame it all on Greg Hollingshead, the Governor General award-winning novelist who was my first year English teacher. Ah. He kept me back after class one day and asked me, you know, what my plans were. And I said, well, I'm going to take my degree as quickly as possible and apply for early admission to law school. And he looked at me like, you know, it's the, 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 the most horrific thing. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, you are a writer. You are a writer and you must write. So years, years later, after I'm, I'm, years later, when he ran the Governor General's Medal, I was actually working uh at CBC Radio in Toronto then as a producer with the Arts Tonight. And he came in and I, I reminded him of that story and he looked at me horror-stricken and he said, you're not going to sue me for lost income, are you? So, <laughs> so yes, so I, I blame it all on Greg Hollingshead. Um, but of course, he didn't think I should be a, a newspaper writer. He thought I should be a writer with a capital W. Sadly, I am not a writer oh, wow. with a capital yeah. W. I'm just not. Um, and so as I was trying to figure out lawyer? Should I be an English professor? What should I be? I was doing some volunteer work for what was then Access Television, which was at the time Alberta's version of TVO. And I was spending time at the Access Studios and meeting a lot of the journalists who worked there. And I thought, now this, this looks like fun. This looks like more fun than my dad's law office. And so when I got to the end of an honors degree in English, I applied to journalism programs, mm -hmm. not really entirely certain that that was what I wanted to do. I'd done a little, you know, I'd volunteered for the campus paper. I'd gotten a summer job as a production assistant with a local radio station. But I, I won a very generous scholarship to Stanford University. And if you have a generous scholarship and you can go to Stanford University, it seemed like a good idea to go. Absolutely. And so I went to Stanford, did their uh, master's program in communication with a emphasis in broadcast journalism. And came back to Alberta and the province was in a complete and utter economic recession. This is in the wake of the National Energy Program. Everybody, you know, it was very difficult to get work. Mm -hmm. And I was able to land a job at a publication called Alberta Report Magazine, which was run by Ted and Link Byfield. 
it was a very right of center publication. I was not a very right of center person, but I had some student loans. And so <laughs> I, I, I took the job and I just loved it. It's, it, it became addictive. Uh, I loved the adrenaline rush. I loved the excitement of breaking news. I loved meeting different kinds of people and interviewing people from all different kinds of walks of life. And I loved the ability to, to write. And so as I moved on from Alberta Report to the CBC, where I spent six years and then 23 years with the Edmonton Journal, I never lost that feeling of excitement. I remember the first time I covered a big story, which was a murder case that was a, a society murder in Edmonton. Oh. And I remember, you know, knocking, you know, going to, the, I thought, well, how do I do this? I've only watched reporters do this in the movies. You know, the journalism school, they don't tell you how to, how to doorstep. So, you know, I went to people's houses and I knocked on the neighbor's doors and I asked the question. I wrote the answers down in my little notebook. And in the back of my head, a voice was saying, this is just as much fun as it looks in the movies. <laughs> so I spent a little more than 30 years as a journalist and I did every medium, television, radio, magazine, newspaper, podcast. Um, I produced and wrote and wrote and produced long form documentaries for ideas on CBC radio. I, you know, I covered big breaking news stories and I spent the latter part of my career as a political columnist. So I did, I, I did pretty much every job there was in the newsroom barring senior management jobs, which I, I, I eschewed to the best of my ability. So having done all that, what do you think the media's role is today in society? Well, this is the existential question of the ages. I don't need to tell you that what used to be called mockingly mainstream media, but conventional media, is in a cataclysmic decline, not just in this country, but everywhere in the Western world. Mm -hmm. The digital revolution, which people had thought was going to democratize knowledge and give all kinds of people platform and voice, which it did do. Um, has also created a kind of anarchic cacophony, which has now been weaponized by people who are not earnestly well-intended, but are some, you know, some serious bad actors. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, um, you know, I had a career in journalism where I watched layoff after layoff after layoff, uh, both in my time at the CBC and in my time working for uh, Post Media or Can West or Southern, all the various things that it was in the time that I worked there. And we are at a point now that is really a crisis point, perhaps not so much in big cities like Toronto or New York or Washington or Los Angeles, but in smaller markets where smaller market papers have been cut to the bone, cut to the point of collapse. And it's very difficult to have the kind of robust public debate about public policy for which newspapers served as the agora, as the marketplace of ideas. When I first started at the Edmonton Journal, which is now almost a quarter century ago, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say everybody in Edmonton read the paper. Maybe everybody didn't have a subscription, mm -hmm. but you know, you read it where it was lying around in, you know, in the coffee shop or the doctor's office. And it was a place that people relied on for the information they needed to make decisions about how they lived in community. I'm not saying that information was always the best or the most perfectly unbiased, but it created a format, a, a, a rebar for public understanding about what was happening in your community. And over my years with the paper, I watched with mounting dismay, horror, existential dread as, as papers and newsrooms, not just in Edmonton, but all across the country, have shrunk to you know, caricatures of what they were even 10 years ago. And it's terribly damaging, I think, to public discourse and to the quality of democratic conversation and inclusion, because people don't know what's going on. I mean, part of that is the evaporation of advertising revenue. Mm -hmm. But part of it also is that people have siloed into narrow castings, uh, where people only hear the news that you know, reamplifies and reechoes their own their own niche perspectives and points of view, so that it's very difficult to figure out, you know, what Uncle Fred is reading or what Uncle Fred is watching because you're not reading and watching the same 
things. And I think it's eroded our capacity mm-hmm. to have respectful conversation because we literally don't know where the other person is coming from. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, on what we need to do in order to write that course or, or yeah. You know, I don't know that there is an easy joke that the, um, the liberal government of Justin Trudeau in the last parliament uh, had a proposal to provide grants for certain large mainstream media organizations. Mm-hmm. I don't happen to favor that plan. I, I have spoken publicly. I mean, I don't want to say I'm outspoken in the sense that I haven't set my hair on fire about it because I don't, you know, there's a risk of sounding ungracious. I mean, I, I have a job now and I don't want to sort of, you know, now that I have a one and a pretty good one, create the appearance that I'm now saying all these other people, too bad for you. Mm-hmm. But giving subsidies to large media corporations to sustain models that are frankly not sustainable for the future doesn't seem to me either a prudent use of public funds or a very strategic way to enhance local media. Mm-hmm. And the longer you keep those big behemoths on life support, the harder it is for the small, um, more nimble, you know, if, if in the age of the dinosaurs, if you kept the dinosaurs on life support, then the mammals don't get to evolve. Right. So I think we need, we need to give an opportunity to have an, an ecosystem and an evolution where the newcomers are not perpetually disadvantaged because, because the big corporations. Are, are getting handouts. I mean, that's leaving aside my philosophical concerns about what happens when the media is beholden to government, which doesn't seem to me like a very good model for independent journalism. Yeah, it, it, I think there's a number of problems, not the least of which is it sounds like you're putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. I mean, yeah. if, it, if the ship is going down, um, you don't sort of bail it with a cup. Because yeah. the irony is that people... You know, it's not that people don't care. In the last few years that I was at the Journal, where frankly, despite the challenges of the paper, I think I did some of the best work of my career, uh, people read it. You know, and now we know exactly how many people read it because there's a, there's a ping that goes off. Yeah. And so, you know, not long, I mean, I guess a couple of years before I left the paper, but sort of in recent memory, the city of Fort McMurray, which is north of Edmonton, the entire city had to be evacuated because of wildfires, and it looked for a time as though the entire city might be destroyed. You can't imagine how cataclysmic an event this was for the people in my part of the country. Mm-hmm. And we were able to cover that event in real time using digital technologies that would have been impossible to us. You know, as a daily print newspaper, how do you cover breaking real-time news? Well, you do it with websites, you do it with Twitter, you do it um, uh, with video. And we had... Um, reporters at the Fort McMurray Today, which is a sister paper, the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Sun, who covered the evacuation in real time while it was happening. We had an entire newsroom of people covering the relief efforts in Edmonton. We were able to advise people, you know, when they were in their cars, you know, where to go, what to do, how to save themselves, where to go once they got to Edmonton for for food and shelter and relief. And I was so proud of that work. And, you know, and and the, the team of us, we ended up winning a national newspaper award for it. So it's not that what we do doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it, it matters more than ever. And people are hungry for that kind of news. But we need to figure out how do we meet that demand with a recognition that we're not going back to the way things were 10, 15 years ago. Do you think, I'm, I'm going off the script on this, do you, do you think uh, that the role of the public broadcaster, CBC, a former employer of yours, uh, is as important now or more important or less important when uh, we're having these conversations? People don't watch the news by appointment television anymore. I mean, the days when people turned in for the six o'clock supper hour news, the national at 10, their local their local news at 11. Yeah. I mean, people you know younger than 80 don't watch television that way anymore. So when you look at just those kinds of ratings, I think you get a, a warped perspective. I think the CBC has actually been pretty nimble in responding to the digital revolution, whether that's by, you know, uh, streaming things online, podcasting. Uh, you know, it's funny, when I worked at CBC Radio, people thought radio was a dying medium, and now radio is more vibrant and creative than it's been, you know, in a, in a generation and a half. So I, I think absolutely there is a challenge is, and I think it's a fair one when, print, you know, the public broadcaster is getting 
all of this government money. And they're essentially competing with us online in our own space. And the private broadcasters are saying, hey, we're in crisis too. We're in serious crisis. Local television stations are facing the same you know, threat of death that local newspapers are. And how do they compete against the CBC? So you know, if you, you can't have a situation where you have only one voice, no matter how good that voice is, and especially a voice that's vulnerable to the, you know, the political fortunes of what happens in the House of Commons. You know, Andrew Shear in this last election campaign was talking about getting rid of CBC News, and I thought, well, if you get rid of CBC News, I mean, I, you know, I, there are some, you know, I, I like kids' convenience, but that's not that's not the whole purpose of CBC. So, Paula, I have I have to ask, you know, what do you think the role of the public broadcaster? I feel like that needs a boomy voice versus private, like what's your thoughts on the CBC's role? Well, I think the CBC's role now is more important than ever before. I mean, it began at a time when there were very few private broadcasters and the idea was to connect Canadians coast to coast and to reflect national identity, mm-hmm. to make sure that everybody had the news, no matter what part of the country they lived in, no matter how uh, remote it was. And I think as local television and stations are in decline, that role is going to be ever more important. The challenge is that we can't have the CBC be the only voice, because right now the CBC has done a pretty nimble job of entering the internet age. It's true. Not as many people are watching the national as used to watch the national, but the era of appointment television news is over. The days when everybody came home at six o'clock and watched the supper hour news at 10 o'clock, everybody turned on Knowlton Nash at 11 o'clock. Everybody turned on their local supper hour news. Those days are gone for all, but you know, sort of a certain tail end of a, of, of a demographic. So we need the CBC more than ever. But at the same time, I understand the frustration of private broadcasters and private newspapers that feel that the CBC is eating at their end of the lunch counter. Because once the CBC moves so much of its work online and fills its newsrooms with people who are rewriting stories basically for print for the web, they're competing directly with newspapers. Mm -hmm. They're competing also with local television news, which is in serious economic line all across the country. And so I understand the frustration of people who are saying, you know, it's great that the CBC has all these resources, but what about the rest of us? Add to that the age-old concern uh, about the CBC being hostage to the vagaries of federal politics and federal funding, depending who's in office at any given time. Uh, you could have a you know a candidate running for office who says he wants to get rid of CBC News. And then where are you? And finally, the CBC has a long-standing blind spot when it comes to reflecting Canada the way it's supposed to. That was that was what my master's thesis was about. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly people outside of the Golden Horseshoe will tell you that the CBC, I mean, when there's a snowstorm in Toronto, that's a national news story. <laughs> you know, you know it, it's it, to call the army in. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't mean that story. I just mean, you know, like, it always amuses me as somebody who spent six years working for the Mother Corp, both in Edmonton and Toronto, uh, the Toronto-centric nature of the CBC. I mean, you know, it's not that that's a, a thing peculiar to public broadcasters. I was saying this to my husband, you know, if you watch MSNBC, which my husband does nonstop to get his his daily I'm mad at Trump fix, yeah. you, would ne- you would never have known, for example, the scale of the fires in California. California is a large place. A lot of people live there. But, you know, the American national media does a very poor job of covering anything outside of Washington, D.C. or New York. So it's not like this is a problem that is particularly unique to the CBC. But it is a huge challenge because the CBC over the years has cut back on its local stations and its resourcing for local programming or for programming that comes from places that is not turned Vancouver. And so we can't rely on the CBC alone as the news source in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I think uh, um, the reality is that there is bias in the media. Well, Um, there's bias in humanity. I mean, human beings, you know, human human beings are imperfect. So, I mean, my attitude has always been since you can't eliminate bias, what you need are a bunch of different voices and then you can make a decision. You have a, a range of information given to you from different perspectives that the real danger is media concentration whether that's in the private or the public sector yeah 
I'm now feeling a great deal of shame for watching the national every night. But anyway, no, um, no, no. I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I, some some of my best friends watch the national every night. I I love my CBC. I love my national. I don't know. It's something very comforting about it. But um, I want to I want to talk about the rise of of fake news, and I'm not talking about Donald Trump. Ex- you know, uh, uh, exclaiming that the CNNs and and Wall Street journals of the world are fake news. I'm talking about real fake news. Well, um, you know, real- but this there was the, there was this thing that's happened. I mean, we're we're talking on Tuesday, November 12th. I guess I should say yes. for context, because I don't know when you're going to put this where people can hear it. But this weekend, in between all of the Don Cherry stuff, the thing that really fascinated me about fake news is that somebody faked up a McClellan and Stewart Twitter account and tweeted out that Alice Monroe had died, the Nobel Prize winning brilliant Canadian short story writer. I, you're, I didn't even hear about this. No. this And so all over Twitter, I mean, I looked at it and I thought, that's really funny language that they're using, like breaking, like they reported it like in this, the, the diction was just wrong. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't retweet it. I can't say I, I didn't retweet it consciously. It was just at some at some unconscious level, my brain didn't hit the retweet button, mm-hmm. and it turned out later on it was completely fake. But for a long time, because I am a person who's interested in Canadian literature, a lot of people that I follow are Canadian writers, Canadian publishing companies, and all of Twitter for this. There was this brief explosion of people sharing their Alice Monroe stories, linking to their favorite works of Alice Monroe. You know, re- reposting articles from when she won the Nobel Prize. It was completely fake. Now, who has a pecuniary interest in faking the news of Alice Monroe's death? I mean, it's just such a random thing. So, you know, I mean, I can't imagine that on some Russian troll farm or some, you know, Chinese <laughs> spy that they thought, oh, I know what we will do. We will paralyze Canada with the news of Alice Monroe's death. This will crush them. So, so, so I mean, I, I would be very sad if Alice Monroe were dead. I'm, I'm glad she isn't. But I just thought, what an example of how fake news is sometimes not done for political reasons or financial reasons or ideological reasons, but just because people want to make mischief, just because they're chaos monkeys. I mean, I just, uh, yes. So when people say fake news, I don't mean that I was quoted out of context by somebody. I, I'm, you know, we're, we're talking about people who actually create false information and then use primarily vectors of social media to amplify it. Absolutely. So so how do you think that has affected the conversation, particularly the political discourse around the world? Well, I mean, I think it's terribly dangerous because I think during the 2016 American election, people were very naive about the capacity of you know enemies of Western democracy, if I can use that kind of grandiose language, to weaponize social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to really interfere with people's information flow in their decision-making about an election. And I think now we're realizing in retrospect just how much fake information was out there during the Clinton-Trump election campaign and how that may have poisoned a lot of people's thinking. I didn't realize until after the fact, because at some point during one of the Democratic debates, I had tweeted something favorable about Hillary Clinton, not about Hillary Clinton, but about something she had said in particular. Maybe it was about free trade. I can't remember. And I was swarmed on Twitter and Facebook by people who would be described as Bernie bros attacking me. And I was like, whoa, you know, I, I, I'm a Canadian journalist as I was then. You know, I mean, and I only realized in retrospect that probably a lot of those Bernie bros were bots. You know, we're not we're not we're not authentic uh, organic Bernie Sanders supporters, right? But we're pe- but we're was set up on a program. See, see somebody say something about Hillary Clinton and swarm them. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, because I had after a few experiences like that, I thought, boy, those people backing Bernie Sanders, what a bunch of mm-hmm. what a bunch of jerks. Uh, which wasn't the word I thought. Um, uh, but but you, you, I realized how manipulated I had been even on that small scale. And so, you know, I think it's. It's really dangerous, you know, when we, when we looked at Brexit, when we looked at the recent election in France, to see how much poisoned information there is out there. So that's that's one kind of information that's being 
weaponized by people who know that they are spreading fake information and they're doing it for political or ideological or malicious reasons. Then there's another kind of fake news, which is news spread by people who really believe that it's true. You know, and I think about sort of anti-vax, anti-vaccine campaigns online. I mean, lots of those people are true believers, but they are spreading fake news just as badly. Right. And, you know, the most dangerous kind of fake news is the kind that incites hatred and violence. And, you know, I, I think back to the uh, the massacre at the mosque in Saint-Foy, Quebec, a few couple of years ago. Someone created a fake Reuters Twitter account with the Reuters uh, news service uh, logo on it and tweeted out false information about that mosque attack to the effect that the shooter had been Muslim himself. This Muslim on Muslim violence. Mm-hmm. And I saw like journalists that I know and respect retweeting that because they saw the Reuters symbol oh, and they didn't stop to, to think, is this plausible? Does this sound real? They saw Reuters and they thought, oh, Reuters is a name we can trust. And they retweeted it. And I spent some time sending Twitter DMs to people saying, please, please don't do that. You know, and finally, then there's there's a whole other different kind of fake news. Uh, there was a piece of legislation before the Senate in June, uh, Bill C-48, yeah. which was a so-called uh, oil tanker moratorium off the northwest coast of British Columbia. It was extremely controversial in Alberta. I spent a lot of time agonizing about that legislation because there were two very good sides to the issue. And in the end, I decided as an Alberta senator that I had a duty to the people I represent to vote against Bill C-8. I spoke about this at length in the Senate. I wrote op-eds about it. I wrote long Facebook essays. I tweeted about it. I mean, I made my perspective on C-48 pretty well known. It didn't matter. The minute the vote was over, I came back to my computer to find hundreds of people denouncing me for voting in favor of the legislation. And I said, but but, but I didn't. I voted against it very publicly. And they said, well, how do we know you voted against it? I said, well, I did it on live television. Uh, and also, here's the Hansard. I ended up you know, doing screen captures of the Hansard and making that my pinned tweet. I couldn't, I couldn't get it to stop. And every now and again, something reactivates it and I get another batch of emails and tweets calling me a traitor to Alberta. How dare you vote in favor of this legislation? So for me as a former journalist, it was really intriguing to see. I mean, it's one thing to say you disagree with me or you have a different perspective than me. It's not, this was not a question of opinion or bias or perspective. This is this is like black letter how I voted. There isn't there isn't really room to disagree about you, know, you can disagree about, with my vote, but you can't disagree that that is the way that I voted. Right. And despite all of my, you know, quote unquote expertise on in dealing with media, I found it, I've, I have found it impossible to shut down this, this rumor. I mean, this isn't a rumor that I, you know, that I, that I fornicate with farm animals. This is a rumor about something that's a matter of public record, right? I mean, so heavens forfend, somebody make up a story about me that is equally false, but much more difficult to prove. Well, and now that you've said that, of course. Yeah, no, we 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 passed we passed very strict legislation about bestiality in the last session of Parliament, and I in the Senate I was I was going to speak to it at some technical point, and my daughter, who's doing smarter than me, said, "Please do not speak yeah. on this subject. Just 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 don't just don't just don't." But but going back to your point, it does force us into this position where we really have to think about everything we're doing and because you're a smart person you looked at that twitter account with the reuters logo and you thought nope something's not right here and you questioned it but the reality is that the vast majority of people won't and even i can't can't even claim that i rationally questioned it there was just a spider sense right it was just a gut tingled and you know it's a gut thing and so i mean what i say to people is if you read something say that's outrageous that seems too that seems impossible to be true it it generally is but you know but studies have shown that that is precisely the material that gets shared the most often right the things that provoke that rage response in our brains um you know our lizard brain tweets before we can stop it yeah absolutely the number of things that i think about my sister my husband my parents they have sent me and you know many exclamation points and i look at it and go 
Did you look at the domain? Did you look at what the source is? It's not real. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, and it's not just a right wing thing. Um, no. My husband had a wonderful great uncle. Uh, my, my husband had a wonderful great uncle. We've, we've lost him recently, Uncle Al. We all adored Uncle Al. Uncle Al was a good Saskatchewan union man his whole life. Um, you know, other people have like uncles who are sharing things that's like crazy right wing. Not Uncle Al. Uncle Al shared every progressive meme. But but Uncle Al also would share stuff. And I would write to him and I was like, Uncle Al, that is not a thing. That is that is not true. That is not a thing that is going to happen, you know. And, and and so, with the best will in the world, people when they see information that amplifies their existing worldview, I don't want to just say their existing prejudices, but it's like the paradigm, you know, the the, the paradigm through which they have based their lives. Of course, that's the thing that seems most resonant and most full of truthiness. But it's 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 at exactly that point mm-hmm. that you have to think to yourself, uh huh, yeah. So yes, and that said, I don't want to claim that I am without sin. I mean, I can't remember one off the top of my head, but there will certainly be one in the future where I retweet and then wish to you know amputate my finger. Absolutely happens to all of us. Okay, so. One day you're a journalist, you're, you're clicking away in your typewriter and all of a sudden the phone rings. It's the prime minister. This is how I imagine it happened. And he asks you to become a senator. Tell me about what actually happened and, and how it played out. So what not everybody knows is that three years ago, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, in a move that some have lauded as brave and others have thought was, you know, foolhardy, decided that he was going to give up the prime minister's prerogative to just appoint people to the Senate. And so he could have, in the last uh, government, appointed 50 capital L liberal senators who would have loyally voted for liberal legislation. That's not what he did. He completely upended the Senate nomination process so that now anybody can apply. You apply online. It's like applying you know, to grad school. Uh, you upload your resume, your CV, you upload an essay about why you think you would be a good senator. You submit three letters of recommendation and answer a few skill testing questions and and you send it in. And then there is uh, an arm's length, the arms long enough, but there is an arm's length panel mm-hmm. that goes through all of those applications and creates a very short, short list for the prime minister. So it's no longer a sort of a bolt from the blue. You apply. So I applied kind of because my family dared me. And I applied seven, eight months before I heard anything back. And frankly, I'd sort of, I don't want to say I'd forgotten about the whole thing, but I had no expectations. I thought, oh, well, I did that. That was kind of a, a fun way, you know, asking people to write letters of recommendations is very good for your ego. Uh, so so I, I, I set this stuff off. And uh, my daughter had graduated uh, from her undergraduate degree. Okay classics. And so my gift to her was a, was a trip to, to Europe, to, to France and uh, Rome and Athens so that uh, she, she could, you know, after her four years at McGill, she did really well. I'm very proud of her. So, we, we, so we're off in Europe and I get this email from somebody who I realized subsequently is with the prime minister's office. who says, you know, this, this is like further to your Senate application. We need a copy of your uh, title deed for your home and your property tax assessment because we need to make sure that you actually own your home and you live in your home and it's worth a certain amount of equity. Lovely. And I said, well, I, I'm on vacation in Paris right now um, and I don't have access to any of those things. And he said, well, it's, it's a secret. You can't tell anybody. And I said, okay, you can't tell your husband. You can't tell everybody. I said, well, can I tell my lawyer because I need someone who can help me get the documents and I thought about it and they emailed me back and they said, yes, because your your lawyer is enveloped in, in you know, it's it's private solicitor privilege. You can tell your lawyer. So happily, I was able to get them the paperwork. And then they sort of, these emails followed me across Europe. Um, you know, now we need this. Now we need that. Now we need to know, you know, the the birthplace of your husband's late stepfather and all of these sorts of questions. That seems relevant. And, you know, and I thought to myself, okay, I guess I'm on a short list. And, and I didn't tell my daughter because they said, don't tell anybody. But they said to me, okay, now we need proof that you have $4,000 in assets outside of your home. And I said, well, so I sent them my bank statements and they were like, no, 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 no. We had a signed attestation 
So I said, well, again, by this time we were in Rome, they said, well, just write it on a piece of paper, sign it and, and take a photograph of it. So I ripped a page out of my daughter's travel diary and I wrote, I, Paula Simons, have real assets of more than $4,000. And I signed it and I took a photo of it and I, I emailed it. And then I thought, I up the piece of paper. But when we were cleaning out the Airbnb, my daughter found it and she was like, are you okay? Because <laughs> why, why are you writing this on random pieces of paper? This so, seems like such a streamlined process. That's right. So then we get to Athens, and uh, I get a phone. We're, we're out for dinner. We've gone to the Acropolis. We got up early. We climbed the mountain. Uh, we're sitting eating squid, um, looking at the sun setting over the Acropolis, and my phone rings, and it's someone from the PMO. And he says, Okay, I need you to stand by for a really, really important phone call. I said, Who, who is going to call me? And he's like, I can't tell you. It's going to be really important. You just need to stand by. And now I look down at my phone and it's got, you know, it's running on vapors. So we have to dash back to the Airbnb and plug the phone into the wall and then look at it for three hours and it doesn't ring. Oh my gosh. You're <laughs> kidding me. So I found an email and I said, look, um, it's two in the morning here and we've been up since very early. And like, I don't care who the very, very important person who's going to phone me is, but I have to go to bed now. So to make a long story short, the very, very important person didn't call me until I'd been back. Uh, from my trip for a couple of days. And he did indeed call in the newsroom. And that's very awkward because if you know anything about newsrooms, you'll know that they don't have walls. And so I pick up my cell phone and a voice says, this is the prime minister's switchboard. Please hold for the prime minister. And so he comes on and I say, you know, good morning, prime minister. And then I run to the back of the building, you know, abandoned office and, and take the phone call. And I come back and my editor says, what was the prime, you know, why were you talking to the prime minister? Because it's not like completely crazy that as a political columnist with the Edmonton Journal, I might have been talking to the prime minister. You know, I mean, I, 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 I talked to other writers, sure, but absolutely. like there was nothing on my, you know, my my outlook that said, oh, I'll be speaking to the prime minister about something. So, yes. So that's that's how it happened. I have just imagined um, Holly Hunter in the role of you during that exchange. I just don't know why that's coming to be, but <laughs> it was it was very awkward because then right, I mean a newsroom is a terrible place in which to keep a secret. Yes. Uh, so I only only my only my really close friends will understand what a triumph of my willpower it was to keep this. I, up to that point, I hadn't told my husband. I hadn't told you know. I hadn't, right. right. I forgot about him. Right. Because he's the least discreet. I, I knew. I mean, I knew. I love him to death, and he'll never hear this. He's the least. I mean, he cannot keep a secret at all. He's the most honest, noble-hearted of souls. But secrecy is just not in his wheelhouse, and so I didn't tell him until after the prime minister had called. I love it. So, not you know, arguably, many people don't know what the role of a senator is. Can you tell us a bit about what? what that job looks like? Well, all right. So this is what I tell grade nine students when I go out to talk to social studies classes. The first and foremost role of the Senate is to superintend government legislation. So every bill that's passed by the House of Commons comes to the Senate to be passed. We often hold public hearings on those bills and bring in witnesses, get expert legal opinions, do our due diligence on the bill. It's our purview to suggest amendments to the bill. Now, some bills require a lot of study and a lot of amendment and a lot of it. Other bills are much more straightforward and have more of a consensus support in the Senate. But really, it's our job to make sure that bills are the best we feel they can be. We also have the power, which we don't use very often, to defeat legislation. It's at this point in my PowerPoint with the grade nine students that I put up a slide of Gandalf saying, you shall not pass. Um, But I explained to them that not every bill is a Balrog. And so we have the power to defeat legislation if it violates the Constitution and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, if it uh, is hugely prejudicial to one of the regions that we represent, if we feel that it is that kind of level of bad legislation. I mean, primarily something that runs in the face of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or other parts of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So we're there to safeguard the Constitution of Canada. 
we're also there to put new ideas on the table. And this is one of the privileges that comes with the fact that we do not stand for election. So we have the power and the freedom to push legislative ideas forward that may not be popular. I always like to tell the kids that you may not think of senators as cool, but it was the Senate that did lots of the groundwork towards the legalization of marijuana because they could hold, you know, do research reports into that at a time when when advocating for legalization of cannabis was politically toxic. They did a lot of the groundwork on medical aid and dying for the same reasons. So one of the advantages to having an appointed Senate is because you're not beholden or or frankly accountable to voters, you can afford to push out radical new ideas and get them into the public arena, get people talking about things. And, you know, sending up trial balloons is actually a big part of our job. Okay. That was a very good, and I feel as a person with a great education, that'll, that'll work for me. Um, you know, are, do you feel like you're able to take up contentious positions? I mean, you know, particularly look at that legislation that you talked about, uh, C-48, which was a controversial bill. Um, it was a very controversial yeah. You, I mean, I am, I am an independent right. senator, so, which, I had to, which I had to remind some people of frequently during that debate. I am not beholden to the Liberal Party. I mean, I'm very grateful that Prime Minister Trudeau supported my appointment to the Senate. I'm grateful to that appointment. But I'm not a member of the Liberal Party. I never have been a member of the Liberal Party. It's not my job to carry for this government or any future government. It's my job to speak honestly about the issues that I think matter to the people in my part of Alberta. So, yes, I mean, that said, different senators pick different issues. I mean, there are people in the Senate with me, like Barry Sinclair, who is the brilliant Canadian jurist who led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, Murray continues to speak out on issues around reconciliation in residential schools and Indigenous rights. I mean, that's his whole area of expertise. It would be criminal not for us to, to hear his voice. My colleague, Kim Pate, who's another independent senator, is a lawyer who dedicated her whole career to prison reform and working for the John Howard Society and the Elizabeth Fry Society. So she continues to speak out very eloquently on those particular issues. So there are certain senators who've come to the Senate from that kind of advocacy background. For me, it's a little bit different. I mean, as a political columnist, I wrote about civil rights and and issues that I thought mattered, but I was never a professional advocate. I was always a journalist who analyzed public policy and then said what I thought about it, an opinion columnist. So for me, I mean, you, you mentioned, um, I can never get, you know, my daughter laughs at me. I can never get LGBTQT plus, <laughs> you know, it, I, 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 sort of, I run out of, I run out of the letters. It's, it's a mouthful. But, you know, that's, it's something that has always been uh, an issue very close to my heart. Um, uh, we we joked when when my daughter came out that it was easier for her because she had seven lesbian aunts. Um, That's a lot of lesbian when you're, aunts. When you're well, because they get because they get married right, and then you have then like, it's like double, right. You have duplicated lesbian aunts. So you know. So for me, um, it was with great pride because I didn't take my oath on a Bible or a religious book. I'm not a religious person. I took it on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was tied with a rainbow ribbon. Oh, nice. So, you know, I will always speak out on that issue. You know, that said, I'm a senator from Alberta. I spent the last, you know, 10, 12 years as a political, you know, more than that, 15 years as a political columnist writing about politics in Alberta. I have a lot of opinions about some of Jason Kenney's policies and some of the things in Jason Kenney's budget. But I don't think it behooves me to spend my time picking fights with the premier on social media. I mean, I can pick up the phone and have a conversation with him if I like, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had lunch with him a few months ago, but it's no longer my role to be the same sort of person I was when I was a newspaper columnist. So I have to, I have to pick my battles. Sure. Is there anything that you would say you're most proud of in your time in the Senate? Oh, a couple of things. I'm really proud of the work we did on Bill C-69, which was the other bill that was 
uh, controversial in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Bill C-69, for those of you who, unlike me, do not have to live this stuff day in and day out, um, was the legislation that revamped environmental assessment of major projects, not just pipelines, all kinds of major public and private infrastructure projects that uh, trespass into federal ambit. And uh, it was a very flawed bill. I picked it up, not just as an Albertan, but as a journalist who did public policy analysis for years. And I thought, this is a bill, a lot of problems. And it, there, were, there were deep, deep foundational problems with the way the legislation had been drafted. And we came together, the independent senators and the conservative senators, the senator on that committee, and we rewrote the bill, top to bottom, and convinced the government to accept 99 amendments to that legislation, which I don't know 100% for certain, but I believe is a record number for any government to accept to any bill. And these were not decorative amendments. These were substantive amendments. And so I was proud of that. And I was proud of the fact that I brought a motion for us to travel and have public hearings on Bill C-69, which was the first time in the entire history of the Senate that public hearings on a bill have ever taken place outside of Ottawa. Mm. Think about that. And I said to people, this is really important, not just so that we can hear the voices of Canadians, but so that Canadians can see what we actually do. There's so much mystery and cynicism about the Senate. And I said, you know, if we go out to communities and we actually hold respectful public hearings and people see us in action, it may change their minds about the utility of the Senate. So I was part of touring public hearings on Bill C-69, as well as on Bill C-48, where we went to Prince Rupert and we went to Terrace, BC. And believe me, not a lot of senators have held events in Terrace, BC. I mean, senators from British Columbia, yes, but I mean, you know, these were senators from across the country who came. And I think even if people didn't agree with the decisions we made in the end, not only did they feel heard, but they saw us listening. You know, those rooms were packed with people hundreds of people who came to watch us. And I, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of having been part of pushing for those hearings to take place outside of Ottawa. That's great. So, Senator, we always like to finish our conversations with the same questions. I like to call them the light and fluffy, but it's just an <laughs> opportunity to get to know you a little bit more. So let's start with the first one. Who are your heroes or heroines? When I was a kid, my number one heroine, because I was because I was a a, a geek and a, and a nerd, was Queen Elizabeth the first. In part because we shared birthday, but also because I thought she was just such an extraordinary, powerful woman who who really reshaped English democracy, who turned England from a backwater into a global power, uh, who presided over. The, the English Renaissance and the age of Shakespeare. And, you know, I just thought she had the most amazing story of having, you know, come from a point where she might have had her head chopped off at any moment in her youth to being the, the Gloriana Queen of England. But I think my real heroine was my maternal grandmother, who was an extraordinary woman who she was widowed in the first in the Second World War, came to this country as a refugee, having dragged her three children through war zones, having survived both Stalin and Hitler, got her kids to Canada and speaking not a word of English, made a life for them here, ended up becoming a successful businesswoman. She was just the most powerhouse, never say die person, a completely exasperating mother-in-law and a pretty exasperating mother, but the greatest grandmother ever, the greatest Oma in the world. I thought you were going to say Alice Monroe. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, uh, I, 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 Alice Monroe. Alice Monroe is a great Canadian writer. Long may she live. So uh, what is your biggest pet peeve? My biggest pet peeve is this seemingly universal belief that everyone in the world likes chocolate. And hence you can put chocolate in anything, and not warn people that it's there. I speak for a very beleaguered and underrepresented minority of people in this world who absolutely loathe the flavor of chocolate. People say to me, well, just just try it. Maybe you'll like it. It's like, no, I, I really know what it tastes like because it's in so many places where it's unexpected. And so that is my completely frivolous pet peeve. I would like people to understand that, like, you know, not not, not 
not all cookie eaters. I'm still trying to process that someone doesn't like chocolate. It's going to take me a moment. I know. I mean, this is, this is, this is a, I, I, I'm a very small minority. <laughs> I think you're just, you're the only person on the planet that doesn't like chocolate. I've I have, there, there is, I have, I mean, I have no button. I have no flag. There's no parade for me. There's no, there's no, there's no lobby group. There's just, just me fighting, fighting for raisins in oatmeal cookies. I mean, <laughs> Oatmeal cookies should have raisins in them. Oh, yes, but that's just Christian. Who would put a chocolate chip? Who, who would ruin a perfectly good oatmeal cookie with a chocolate chip? This is this is. I have to agree with you on that one. Oatmeal chocolate chip—that's just that's, that's heresy. No, 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 no. Oatmeal raisin—that's that's that's a cookie. I'm going to give you this one. Um, and what is your happiest or guiltiest pleasure? Oh, Twitter. Twitter, okay. <laughs> Twitter is my addiction. That's not a guilt. That's not a pleasure. That's like a, that's like one of those, like the, like the rat who pushes the electrode and gets shocked and does it again. Um, uh, okay. You actually, you actually gave me this question to think about in advance and I still didn't think about it. Um, see, a guilty pleasure implies that I should feel badly about it. Or happy. I don't know. Do we, do a, we do a sort of a, a stroke in the middle there. I like to read in the bathtub. I have destroyed many books this way. I like to like long hot baths and read books in them. And oh, neat. Okay. Guests who don't know us well are often quite shocked when they come to our home and find that we have a great big bathtub and it's surrounded by mountains of books, giant piles of books. I married a man who also likes to read in the bathtub and we raised a daughter who likes to read in the bathtub. So, I mean, this is, this is a terrible thing. Like people who actually love books as artifacts would be horrified by our house because the books all have these wavy leaves. Because <laughs> even if they haven't been dropped in the tub, they've sort of been, you know. Moisture. Moisture. Um, and I, I have a Portuguese water dog. If she could read, she would also like to read in the bathtub. Absolutely. The whole family's in the bathtub reading Alice Monroe. The whole family's in the bathtub, including, you know, the other day when my husband brought her in from a walk and she was all muddy. Oh, gosh. And I was in the tub and she just jumped right in with me. He said, it was really funny. I was like, yes. 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 That was very funny. So that's it. Well, Senator, thank you. This was a delight and such a great conversation and an opportunity for, for the average Canadian to learn a little bit more about the Senate and particularly one of its uh, independent senators. So thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It was a, it was a delight to speak to you too. I've met a lot of politicians in my life and honestly, I find most of them to be cut from the same cloth. I think that's why I find Paula's approach so refreshing and unique. We're fortunate that her university professor pushed her into journalism because I think it's her impartial journalistic eye that makes her the perfect fit for the Senate, which ultimately makes the lives of all Canadians better. Given this new Senate appointment procedure, it might be time for me to get my letter written. <laughs> never fear, Canada. That's never going to happen, for all our sakes. That's all for today's episode of Talking to Canadians. Thanks for listening, and thank you to my guest, Paula Simons, for sharing her story. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast through your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. Connect with me through social media. I'm DiversityDudeMB. And don't forget to stay up to date with everything CCDI is up to by visiting our website at ccdi.ca. Thanks again, and I'll be talking with you again soon, Canada.